Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, where each episode explores how to integrate timeless wisdom into everyday life. We engage in meaningful conversations with leading thinkers in philosophy, leadership, theology, and everything in between. We leave no stone unturned in search of wisdom. To learn more, visit perennialleader.com. Welcome and thank you for listening. On today's episode, my guest is Andrew Lin, the author of Classic Philosophy for the Modern Man. Andrew is a lawyer, writer, and author of the Classics for the Modern Man series. His mission as a writer is to draw upon classic texts and traditional wisdom to help us answer the most profound questions we face as human beings. In the conversation, Andrew and I discuss classic philosophy for modern life, Aristotle and the golden mean, ancient lessons from parables, William Hazlitt on success, finding your path in life, and much more. Please welcome the wise and gracious Andrew Lin. Well, welcome to In Search of Wisdom, Andrew. Thank you for coming on. Uh, happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Uh, to begin, I was hoping we could chat about what initially led you down the path of uh, of writing classic philosophy for the modern man, which turned into a, a series of a number of books. Basically, I wanted to explore a fundamental question, which was essentially how to live life well. I, I become aware that philosophy had... Um, once attempted to answer that question, but that modern academic philosophy had lost its way. And my book was an attempt to remedy that, that lack. In particular, where much academic philosophy tends to criticize the past from the standpoint of the present, what I wanted to do was to use the wisdom of the past to analyze and uh, comment upon the standpoints of the modern world. The book also reflects my own experience. I'd um, started out taking a PhD at Cambridge University in, in England in Renaissance literature as a young man, but I'd been a bit of an adventurous spirit. So on completing that, I went to teach in university in Beijing in China. Several years after that, I converted to law and I practice law now. So the way I see Western philosophy is not only as an academic insider, but really with something of the benefit of, the, of an experience outside the Western world and also uh, with the experience of a person who's been involved in a practical, professional life. So that's what I really um, was, was trying to do with the book, was trying to, to, to present philosophy in a way that made it relevant to the modern man, I call them a, a modern man, it doesn't have to be a man, it can be a woman as well, um, to the modern person who, who may not have a, a great deal of time, just would like to be inspired by a traditional wisdom. And that was really the, um, the, the purpose of the book. When you think of classic philosophy in, in modern life, is there any any you know one or two things that maybe come to mind that that you think could really help us today well when i talk about classic philosophy um obviously i'm not just talking about classical philosophy i'm talking about philosophy really pre pre 20th century that's what i really mean by classic philosophy uh, philosophy pre 20th century always put ethics um what was meant by the good life and how to obtain it as among the most important fields of inquiry. And we have to remember that philosophy was not traditionally carried out by, by university lecturers, but by independent thinkers. So you have people like uh, Schopenhauer, for example, who was totally scathing of university philosophers like Hegel. These philosophers didn't need to justify philosophy as an academic field of study. 
um, perhaps they felt more free to focus on these broader issues such as living life well or the, the good life. So philosophy at its best, to me, uh, challenges our beliefs and preconceptions, it helps us to break out of rigid and conventional patterns of thought and behavior. For me, the most um, um, profound statement of that is, is found in Plato, his parable of the cave. Plato says that we're all like men who are sitting watching the shadows of puppets flickering across the walls of a cave. But that if we went outside of the cave, we would be blinded by the light of truth and we probably wish to return back to the cave. So what Plato is saying there is that philosophy at its best really can take you out of this cave of illusion, this, this state of illusion that we all live in, into the light of truth. And, and, and it will be shocking. It can be, can be something we resist, but that nevertheless, it, it is really um, our, our route to a truer form of existence and living. Maybe we could start with um, a student of, of Plato that you reference in the book. How do you see Aristotle helping us here in, in modern life? In, in the book, um, Classic Philosophy for the Modern Man, I, I focus on a, a particular concept that was widely uh, known and accepted uh, by the ancient uh, Greek philosophers, and that's the concept of arete. Arete is, is often translated as um, excellence. It can also be translated as virtue, but it really means excellence. And I opened the chapter on Aristotle by reference to this concept. Now, it's very interesting, really, because in identifying virtue with excellence, Aristotle is doing something that's quite different from what is usually done in, in the modern world, contemporary world, when we think about ethics or morality. We tend in the modern world to think about ethics or morality as being a kind of obedience, obedience to, 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 to universalistic, abstract moral codes, often codes of self-denial. But arete, uh, as, a, as virtue, is something quite different. As I say, it means excellence. Um, Aristotle developed that concept by reference to, um, you know, the, the concept of the good. So let's give an example. Well, what, is a, what is a good item, a good knife, for example? A good knife is a knife that cuts well. What is a good horse? A good horse is a horse that runs well. What is a good field? A good field is a field that produces crops well. So the virtue or the excellence of a thing is the carrying out of its proper purpose well. Now, Aristotle concludes that the proper function of man is contemplation or, or more precisely, rational activity. And that this is therefore the, the end or the goal of life for humankind. Um, I think it's, it's important to, to note that when Aristotle talks about rational activity or contemplation, he's not just advocating for, or, or not primarily advocating for passive contemplation, but for a kind of rational activity that engages the highest parts of each man's potential in exploring and commanding the universe around him. When we think of, of contemplation, maybe traditional definition of, of something around deep reflection, is, does that connect with a, a, a deep reflection on, on excellence? Any, like any, any thoughts there in terms of contemplation of, of what that looks like today? As I say, I think when Aristotle's talking about rational activity, it has to be connected to his concept of the golden mean. I'm sure we'll talk about that a bit later. But uh, the golden mean is the, um, the, the midpoint between two vices, and, and it is the, a positive quality that's found between two negative qualities. So, for example, um, courage is the positive quality that's found between the negative quality of cowardice and, then, and the negative quality of recklessness. So when we're talking about rational activity, it's my understanding of Aristotle is it's not pure uh, passive contemplation. It's not a case of sitting in, in a room and, and meditating and thinking about um, the, the meaning of life in a, in a, in a purely contemplative way. It's about um, engaging rationally with existence. 
So that's that's my understanding of, of Aristotle. I think that's really really helpful. Um, a, another thing that you write about in the book regarding Aristotle is this idea of finding pleasure in in excellence, and and then obviously. Um, experiencing pain from the opposite of that mediocrity if you will yes well aristotle begins by telling us that the word the word ethos uh, comes from from the word for habit so ethics uh which is the modern the modern word we use for ethos essentially means it means habit ethics therefore comes not from the observation of the of abstract moral rules as is often thought about today, but from the incorporation of habit into character. In short, Aristotle thought we become good by doing good things, and we become excellent by cultivating habits that lead to excellence. Now, Aristotle is emphatic that, that virtue is self-reinforcing. That means that each time we act well or act virtuously, Aristotle thought, it then becomes easier to act well on the next occasion in the future. Mm. So, for example, it's by acting courageously we actually become brave. I, I mean, I found that in my own, my own experience. I do some, um, I like doing Muay Thai, a bit of sparring in, in Thai kickboxing. And I found that actually the way to, 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 to do that bravely or confidently is it's just by putting yourself in that position more often. You know, the more, the more often you put yourself in a position where you need to be brave, the more likely you are to be brave on the next occasion. And that's really what Aristotle is talking about there. I mean, he also adds that, you know, excellence, as you say, consists in finding pleasure in what is excellent. So the, the important point in Aristotle is that virtue only has a solid foundation in character. That, that's to say a man is not really virtuous until choosing virtue comes naturally and effortlessly. And in fact, at that point, you won't even be choosing virtue. By the time that you are a virtuous person, uh, according to Aristotle, you will just, it is your state of being and you will enjoy it. You won't even have to choose it. And that's really the point about um, uh, excellence being, being a finding a pleasure in what's excellent and experiencing pain in what is mediocre. Hearing you describe these lessons from Aristotle, it it doesn't seem like it gets any more practical, you know, than that. And you mentioned kind of in the beginning of maybe modern philosophy getting a a bit away from the from the practical, from the from the good life. Um, it's an interesting thing. Any any thoughts of how that comes to be? In terms of, of, of practical advice, I mean, Aristotle is really um, one of the best of the ancient philosophers to go to. We mentioned earlier about the, the golden mean, and I, I find that to be really a very helpful practical guide. As, this, as I mentioned, the, the golden mean is the doctrine that virtue is found in the midway between two vices. So, as I said, courage between somewhere between cowardice and recklessness, or generosity is found somewhere between meanness, for example, and extravagance. And I really think this is very, uh, it's very humane doctrine in the first place, because it recognizes that virtue is, is not of a different order than vice. Virtue and vice just occupy different points in, in a spectrum of conduct. And it's also very subtle, because it's focused on making adjustments rather than, than, than radically overhauling our whole characters or sort of moral thinking. You know, for example, again, to take the example of courage. In, in the case of courage, you, you have to find the, the, the right position somewhere between cowardice and, and recklessness. And you know, it's unlikely that, 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 that any of us are either of the two extremes. And so it's a question of, of really shifting ourselves along that spectrum between cowardice and recklessness and that that is leading towards virtue of course um there are many of these spectrums i mean that there are many of, of uh, virtues that are found between two different vices so so we have to be doing this in a whole different range of aspects of our character um and that's that that's obviously a demanding um task but nevertheless it's not an impossible task aristotle doesn't ask 
the impossible of us. So as practical guidance, uh, you know, what's Aristotle really suggesting? We, we aim for the midpoint between the two vices, as, as we've discussed. And, I mean, he adds a, a little bit more. He says that we, we should be careful to, generally speaking, to move away from the extreme that is most opposed to the virtue. So, again, go back to the question of, of courage. Um, we have one extreme uh, cowardice, the other extreme recklessness. Now, in most cases, people are probably closer to cowardice than they are to recklessness. So, generally speaking, we want to be moving away from cowardice and in the direction of recklessness, even though we don't want to, to come too close to recklessness. Simply, simply that in most cases, most of us are more likely to be cowards than we are to be reckless. Um, and, and he also is keen to point out that uh, it varies according to, to who we are. Certain people individually will be closer to one of the particular vices than the other. So some, some people may be um, more inclined towards cowardice, but some people may be more inclined towards recklessness. And if you're one of the ones who's more inclined towards recklessness, then, then you ought to be working to adjust in the opposite direction. You ought to be moving towards being more careful and more, more cowardly, in fact. It reminds me of something I read somewhere of this, um, you know, lesson that Aristotle was teaching Alexander the Great. Maybe someone, as you mentioned, that leaned more towards recklessness, kind of explaining of would going out uh, ahead of your army be killed instantly? That be courageous. Explaining that that lesson there is yes. is uh, really practical. Of course, Alexander being Aristotle's pupil, I mean, there's no there's no better, in a sense, confirmation of the <laughs> of the 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 um, practical utility of Aristotle's teaching. I mean, you know, what, what more could a teacher ask for than to have his pupil conquer the known world? <laughs> How about this? It seems like a universal lesson or, or principle or, or wisdom, this idea of, of finding some midpoint. I, I think of maybe an Eastern philosophy of, of the idea of the middle way. Um, any connection or fami familiarity there? It's a very interesting point to raise. The way I see it is that, is that there's something in common and also something quite different. So what's, what's in common between the, the so-called, you know, the golden mean of Aristotle and, and the, the middle way of the Eastern philosophy, particularly Buddhism? Now, to my understanding, Buddhism's middle way is the avoiding of the extremes of self-indulgence and self-denial, and in particular to, to the non-attachment to, to, to these extremes of self-indulgence and self-denial. And this means also being detached from from pleasures and also from from rigid habits of thinking or conduct, and that that is similar in some ways to Aristotle's golden mean, because like Aristotle's golden mean, it's it, it involves the charting of a path between the middle of uh, or, or at the middle of two extremes. But where is it different? It's, it's different in that the um, Buddhist doctrine instructs us to to identify. Or, or to, to understand that even the thoughts that we have are not really us. They are really distractions from our pristine consciousness. I've always been struck by the, the Buddhist concept of, of um, the mind as being inhabited by thoughts, a little bit like the sky is inhabited by clouds. So thoughts just pass through the mind like clouds pass through the sky. And... and Thoughts are not the mind, just like the clouds are not the sky. And, and the real mind, this, this pristine consciousness, is really this, um, this, this emptiness, or virtually not a kind of non-being, or, or it's been, obviously it's called nirvana, um, in, in, uh, and some people um, will translate that as an extinction of concepts or, or, or simply as a kind of non-being. Aristotle is quite different. His golden mean is, really isn't, isn't that. It's very much a this-worldly doctrine, seeking a, a middle point that is not a kind of repose or a non-being, but is a type of, of superior activity. So Aristotle's golden mean is not a negative quality. It's not a passive or a reposeful quality. It's a positive 
forward thrusting quality. So again, let's go back to the example we've been using of, of, of courage as the, the middle point between cowardice and recklessness. And courage, although it's the middle point between the two vices, it's not a negative quality and it's not, it's not, a, it's not a middling quality. It's, it's a distinctly positive quality and it's an active quality. So that is, is the respect in which I think that Aristotle's golden mean is, in a sense, both similar and different from uh, the, um, the, 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 the doctrines of the Far Eastern philosophies. Well, greatly appreciate that background and, and comparison there. Maybe we can transition to a, a lesser-known figure here in the West, but... Um, Maybe a, a more well-known figure in the in the East of Chuangzu, and and please correct me if I'm mispronounced that. I mean, yes, there are different different pronunciations of, of Chuangzu, Chuangzu. Um, it all depends on on, on which type of transliteration uh, we're using. Chuangzu uh, was. I mean, we need to take a step back, really, to to, to understand that. Ancient Chinese philosophy had two main branches. Um, on the one hand, there was Confucianism. On the other hand, there was Taoism. So Confucianism is a philosophy focused on really everything being in its proper place in a hierarchy. So you'd have the, 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 the lords and masters above the, the workers and the slaves. You'd have the, 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 the fathers above the uh, the children, the older generation above the younger generation, men above women, everything in its so-called proper place. And this was a dominant philosophy in the, uh, the, uh, the ancient um, Chinese empire. But uh, it was not the only philosophy of that period. There, there was a, a counterbalancing philosophy, and that was known as Taoism. Um, Taoism referred to Tao as being a, a force in nature. Uh, it was a force that, 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 that ran through the whole of existence and, and really made a mockery of human attempts to control the situation, control nature and control themselves. Um, it, the, the, the positive quality that we'll talk about a bit later is this idea of, of Wu Wei, uh, which is translated as effortless activity. The, 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 the essential idea being that um, you, you, you essentially do more by doing less. If you can um, insert yourself into, into the Tao, into the flow of existence uh, in, in a relaxed and effortless way, you can achieve far more than you can by struggling um, against yourself and against the world. So you have these two main branches of, of ancient Chinese philosophy. And Chuangzi is, is really the second great Taoist philosopher after Lao Tzu. How do you see this, this idea of um, action, actionless action, this Wu Wei, in terms of integrating in, in, in modern life? It, it may not be as, as obvious as if we think back to, to some of Aristotle's you know, lessons in, in philosophy, but how do you think about integrating this particular lesson in, in everyday life? The, the way I approach it in the book is to um, provide several of Trangs's um, very, very uh, meaningful little, little anecdotes or short stories or, or parables. One of the, one of the ones that I, I like a lot is, is called Cook Ding Cuts Up an Ox. And it's just a little story that Trangsa tells about um, a, a, a very competent cook, um, a, a butcher, who is able to um, cut through the carcass of an animal, uh, all the while keeping his knife sharp and clean, always cutting smoothly through the meat, um, along the veins and through the interstices of the, of the, of the meat. So when he's cutting with his blade, it's, it's just totally effortless and clean. Um, and he compares that to, or that can be compared to, 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 to the, the commonly understood concept of a butcher who just chops and hacks at a carcass, uh, blunting his knife against bone and cartilage. So the idea is by um, the idea of of cooking, cutting up the ox, and, and telling this story is to communicate 
the, the, the idea that, that there is a way of, of working and living that, is, um, that goes with the grain rather than against the grain. And I think that's really the, the, the fundamental principle of Wu Wei or effortless activity. There's another um, short parable in, in the book. Um, it's called A Useless Tree. And this is a story of a tree. <laughs> and, and, the, and the tree just, just grows big um, and, and ancient and survives. And, and why, why and how can it do that? And the answer is that it's, it's useless. It's, it's because the tree is useless that it survives, grows big, and grows old uh, and has a great long existence. Um, if the tree had been use, useful to somebody, uh, the tree would have been uh, cut down. I mean, if it had been useful to make some furniture out of the tree, then, then, then the tree would have been are uh, cut down and converted into furniture. Um, so there is a benefit to being useless. There's a benefit to to being of 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 no assistance to to anybody and not doing anything. So it's the benefits of inaction. And these are, you know, the, the, these are things that often underlooked in, in modern life. The, 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 that sometimes there's a there's a benefit to doing nothing. <laughs> And we're not saying doing nothing in the sense of being lazy. It's it's not that. It's it's doing nothing in the sense of, of of consciously abstaining from activity because the activity is not helpful in in the particular circumstance. There's um, another story um, called drumming on a tub. It's actually a story of Drangsa himself, and his wife has passed away, and and he's found just 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 drumming drumming on a on a tub making some music and people are like well, why are you doing that your wife is, your wife's died what's wrong with you but but he's just clear that that, that, that death is just a change of state um, the, the person who was his wife came into being at one point and now she's passed out of being and and this is part one aspect of, of change and the transformation of all things so so it's necessary to to come to terms with that, to, to understand it and to, 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 to live with it and to accept, accept it. Uh, and that there's, there's no disrespect to her in his behavior. He's paying the greatest respect to her because he, he's fully respecting the, the course of her, her total transformation. Uh, and my, perhaps my favorite of all the, um, the anecdotes I have in the book, the, the, the short stories or parables, is, is Drang's story of the empty boats. He tells the story of a, of a boat. We ask you to, 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 to consider yourself in a boat on, on a lake or a river, and another boat hits you. Uh, and how you view that? And, he, and he, he gives he asks you to think about two scenarios. One is the scenario where there are people in the boat that hits you. In that scenario, of course, you'd be you'd be upset. Like, why why didn't these people in their boat take more care? Why did they have to row their boat into my boat? What is wrong with them? You know, you feel angry and irritated by that. And he asks you to imagine exactly the same thing happening, but it with an empty boat. An empty boat collides with your boat in just the same way as the full boat did. When the empty boat collides, practically speaking, it's exactly the same consequence to you. But when the empty boat collides, you don't mind. You accept it. It's just an empty boat. So, so you change your view according to the subjective aspect. Uh, because the boat had people in it, you feel blameful. You feel angry. You feel uh, distressed, disappointed. Uh, many negative emotions. So the empty boat doesn't, doesn't create those in you. So... It's revealing really the the powerful subjective aspect of existence and and teaching us that of course we don't have to, to we don't have to go with that. I mean, if if we can feel okay when an empty boat collides with our boat, why can't we also feel okay when a boat with humans in it collides with our boat? Because actually, it's the same thing to us. So. Um, Chuangzu talks to us through these many different um, parables, short stories, uh, and each one is, is kind of intriguing uh, and thought-provoking and helps us to really understand this idea of um, effortless activity to, to readjust our 
perception of the world so that we are no longer in, in constant conflict with it, that we are able to understand and work with it in a way that is, uh, is most appropriate for others and for ourselves. I'm a huge fan of these parables, and I, I also love that the la- the empty boat parable. Um, to me, it's just such an important lesson. Uh, we do a, quite a few episodes on Stoicism, and obviously there's a lot written about the the perils of anger and things like that, and that parable is just perfect mm-hmm. for that. Um, this idea of actionless action, as you're describing it it makes me think of um i spent my adult life in the in the military and there's this common phrase or i guess you'd call it a phrase but um that fast is slow smooth is fast just this counterintuitive idea whether it's like uh um you know marksmanship with firing weapons or whatever it may be uh and and this that idea of Wu Wei really connects with just this counterintuitive thing. Another thing that comes to mind is um, um, discipline equals freedom, which is a more common modern phrase. But this same same principle of it's a bit counterintuitive to how we initially think. Well, it's funny you you mentioned that about the military because I mean I don't have experience of military, but I've had experience in academia, but. but most of my life for the last 10 or 15 years has been with the law, legal practice um, as, a, as a barrister. And one of the things I was, I was taught by, by my um, mentors in, in this field was in the law, if, you, um, if you're not sure what action you should take, take no action. I mean, the, the, you know, the, 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 yeah, you, 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 it's best to take no action rather than wrong action. Just, just go for inaction. So, so I can really relate to the idea of... Um, you know, uh, Wu Wei effortless activity in the sense that, that non-action sometimes is the best course of action. How about a, a more modern figure, William Hazlitt? Yes, go. I mean, go ahead. I mean, what, what can I tell you about Hazlitt? Yeah, I would um, maybe since he at least he's a lesser-known figure to me. You know, who is William Hazlitt, and and what could we learn about about success from him? Uh, William Hazlitt is almost the wild card of the the, um, the the philosophers I include in in, in classic philosophy for the modern man. I mean, the, 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 just just taking a step back, I, I, some of the philosophers I include are not often categorized pr- primarily as philosophers. So, so so some of them are like Plato, Aristotle, obviously are, um, for example. But but um, a couple of, of them are not. So so one of the philosophers I talk about, Castiglione, who's not really primarily a philosopher. He's an Italian essayist. Uh, of the Renaissance, and, and Hazlitt is an English essayist rather than a pure philosopher. But I found that his his essay on success was so um, so so stimulating and provocative and different that it was worthy of inclusion in in the book. So, what what is who is Hazlitt? Say he's an English essayist, and, and the the essay on success really is a. Um, a humorously cynical account of what it is to become a successful person. Um, he, he he really, in, to my mind, exposes the um, the distractions of, of most uh, success literature. So this, I mean, we're all familiar with self help books in in the modern era um, and various forms of, of writing that tell us how we ought to be successful. Um, often they focus on, on being, being, you know, working hard, being dedicated to a goal, uh, planning our time effectively, uh, working well with others, all this kind of stuff. Um, and, and it may have something in it, but, but Hazlitt is wonderful because he, he takes a, a, just a much more robust, cynical and, and doubting view on all that. So, so what does he say? He says, for example, that success um, comes predominantly through a focus not on deserving it but on obtaining it so essentially what he's saying is is that that, that don't worry about deserving success don't worry about being the person who who ought to be successful the the people in reality who become successful are those who are just single-mindedly focused on obtaining success rather than 
deserving it. Deserving it is something that takes a lot of time. You know, if you want to be deserving of success in whatever field you're in, you have to become excellent at it. You've got to spend a lot of time on it. Um, and, and and that's really wasteful. You know, if you simply want to be successful, then, then you focus on obtaining success rather than deserving it. He also says that success in, in practice, he, he thinks, comes through what he calls animal spirits and showy accomplishments. So what he's saying, of course, is that is that actually you've got to just you've got to put yourself out there. You want to be you want to be successful. You've just got to you've got to really um, show off a bit. I mean, you, you you can't hide your light under a bushel. That that success is all about thrusting yourself forward into in, in, into um, the limelight and and letting others see you. And and that's the way you will be known, remembered, and become successful. And he also says that. Success comes through what he calls constitutional talent. And what he really means there is through raw physical good health. He talks, for example, about how much better it is to be fit and healthy and handsome than it is to be talented and intelligent. That, that, that being fit, healthy and handsome will get you a lot further in life than, than being talented or intelligent. So, I mean, what, what I love about Hazlitt and, and the reason he's included in the book is because he provides this uh, much more... Um, cynical, humorous, and um, robust understanding of what it is to become successful. You write in in the book of this idea of the dull, plodding man being content with narrow mediocrity. Could you say more there? Yeah, the dull, plodding man. I mean, that's a phrase that comes straight from from Hazlitt. And my understanding of what he's trying to say is this that. In life, one of the surest routes to at least a modicum of success is simply to get into a field of activity and carry on doing it for long enough. And, and then you, you become the dull, plodding man. But if you do any one particular activity for, for long enough, you know, ultimately you'll become reasonably good at it, even if you were not particularly talented. And I can say as a, as a without too much... Um, without too much cynicism that is, uh, as a lawyer, that that, that, that that would work, I think, in the legal profession. I mean, if you just get into the, the legal profession and you're willing to really work at it and just plod through for many, many, many years, you, you'll do okay. I mean, you may not be the most, um, you know, the most spectacular lawyer, but, but there's, a, there's a good life ahead of you. And I, I would imagine it's true in other fields of activity. Um, there's a lot to be said for just getting into a route and just 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 proceeding down it for 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 a large amount of time because the time you spend compensates for any any lack of natural talent that you may have and and vice versa. If you may have a great natural talent for something, but if you don't spend many years on it, you know the person who spent you know twenty years on it with a bit less talent than you, you've only spent five years on it. Well, who's 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 the better? I mean, probably the one that spent more time on it. The other thing about the dull plodding man, of course, is that Hazlitt's keen to emphasize you don't have to be perfect and you shouldn't pursue perfection. This, um, and there's a modern version of this, this way of thinking, which is the so-called 80-20 principle. It's also known as the Pareto principle, which uh, suggests that, that generally speaking, 80% of our outputs result from 20% of our inputs. So... Um, the 20% of time we spend on something results in 80% of the result and, and vice versa. And let's say you, you're, you're studying uh, studying a particular subject. Um, you need to pass an exam in it or something. The first 20% of, you, of the time you spend on it, you, you already will, will get 80% of the benefit. And in the next 80% of the time, you'll only get 20% of the final benefit. So it's something of the law of diminishing returns. The, the dull, plodding man understands or, or the, 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 that, that he's not pursuing perfection. He knows that it's not, it's, it's, it's not necessarily helpful or necessary, and it, it's not, he doesn't need it. The final point about the dull, plodding man, of course, is that the world is uh, subject to human weakness and fallibility, and in particular to envy and exploitation. But the dull, plodding man is not likely to be envied, and he will rarely be exploited. So unlike the, 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 the person who may be rather more talented, 
the dull plodding man is able to proceed through life, in a, particularly through his work, his or her working life. Of course, when we say man, we don't necessarily mean, mean male in the modern world. The dull plodding person is able to proceed through their working life um, without really the degree of trouble that perhaps the talented person may well experience. These seem to be perennial lessons that have been spoken over, over for thousands of years and we still need to hear today. For somebody that's written a, a number of books, I think of this this adage of, of a book is, is two crappy pages a day. Eventually that that turns into a book that's, that's put out to the world. Does that connect with you in terms of the dull plotting little by little? It's funny you say that because I actually, um, I, I, I've started it in my own life employing the dull plodding man approach to, to things. And, and, and I don't necessarily t- tell myself, I don't, I don't put it to myself in that way because it's not so attractive. But there's another more attractive way of putting it, which is to use time as your friend rather than as your enemy. That's, that's what I like to think of nowadays. So, so for example, in, when I was younger, I, I think... Uh, like a lot of us, uh, I'm not alone in this. I think that I probably um, wasted time. I wasted, you know, years would go by, and and, and I was in, enjoying myself, and I was learning things, and I was I, I was doing things, but still, that I wasn't maximizing or taking full advantage of time. Whereas now, I understand that if you just every day, let's say you're commuting, I commute to work, I probably spend about 30 minutes every day on a ferry. Without fail, 30 minutes there, 30 minutes back, I'm, 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 I'm reading something, sometimes I'm studying, sometimes I'm, 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 I'm working on, on project or, or whatever it may be, but I make sure that 30 minutes there and back, it, it, there and back is not wasted. Using time to my advantage rather than against me because if you use the 30 minutes a day in one particular activity or an hour a day uh, you you know as the years go by that, that that translates into something that becomes something either becomes if you're studying becomes more knowledge if you're working or say you're writing then it becomes as you say it becomes um, becomes a book I mean you know the 30 minutes or an hour a day for, for five years that's a book probably two books or three books so um, I suppose the yeah, Hazlitt calls it the dark plodding man. He's 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 provocative and he's cynical, but there's a there's a positive way of putting it, which is to turn time to your advantage rather than your disadvantage, and take advantage of these little bits of time every day. But cumulatively, they they can they, they translate into something. Hmm. I I love that, and I I have to share a quote that I that I love from Zeno. He says. Um, well-being is achieved little by little, but is no small thing. Um, yeah, I, I love that idea. Maybe we the, the last figure that we could talk about today is uh, Emerson. Why should someone pick up Emerson today? Emerson is a very special figure. Uh, he is... Um, He's a thinker and a writer and an essayist, but he's also a um, he's also somebody who's a great advocate for the uh, religious or spiritual orientation. Emerson suggests that, that all things are divine and that and that they are all aspects of one great um, resplendent unity. So. For the modern reader, is is in a sense the opposite of, of Hazlitt. Hazlitt is is the the most cynical of all the the authors, including classic philosophy. And Emerson, uh, I, I I place him at the very end for for that reason, is the most fundamentally positive and optimistic of all of those those authors that I include. He, in addition to suggesting that that all things are divine, everything is an aspect of this divine unity. He actually. Um, um, suggest that even those experiences we have that are tragic and terrible, uh, when they become part of our memory, they're converted in our memory, um, and we then retain those memories, but they are far away uh, and, and disconnected from the extremes of pain and emotion that we that we had when we first experienced them. And I think that's a very um, interesting um, 
insight, and we don't often talk about it, people don't often, don't often really realize it's happening, but I mean, we've all, every single person in, in life has experienced various, I mean, beyond a certain age in life, experienced various tragedies. I and mean, we've all lost uh, family members, beyond a certain age, we've all lost family members. Uh, we've all had uh, severe disappointments in our, um, in our careers. We've all had major um, unanticipated and unwanted changes in our circumstances. All these things have happened to us, and yet, you know, if we look at it in our memory, as it exists right now, right now, we're, we're fine. Right now, Joshua's fine. Right now, myself, Andrew, fine, happy, good. Uh, and yet, we've been through these things. So the, 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 the true um, grace, really, of this, this existence that we've been given is that somehow it converts um, tragedy and, and terror into into memory that is not is is really disconnected from that pain that, that we once felt. So, so Emerson has this really uh, profound insight into um, the, I think the, in the sense the, the, the spiritual or, or divine nature of, of existence. There's there's another thing that I think is so important that comes from Emerson today. And actually, interestingly, it was not an aspect that I focused on when I was writing the book because I wrote the book a few years ago. Uh, it's something that's become more apparent to me more recently, especially in, in the last year or two with um, you know the, 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 the virus and, and such like. And um, let's put it this way. If you ask what is the predominant emotion today across the world, I would hazard to guess it's probably fear. But, you know, Emerson always says, trust don't fear. You know, the, the, the life is not, is not that way. Existence is not designed to, to hurt us. Existence is designed to teach us and to guide us. And there'll be moments that we find disagreeable. But nevertheless, we shouldn't fear. Let's trust, trust in existence and don't fear. And I think that if we ask ourselves today, what is the predominant reaction to the fear? And I, I, I would hazard to guess that the predominant reaction is this desire for control, this idea that we can control everything. The virus is a good example. We think we can control it through lockdowns, control it through through, um, through, through face masks, control it through vaccines, control it through all kinds of things. But, you know, Emerson says, just let go of your need for control. Um, that, that, again, the universe is not designed to, to hurt you, that this was not the divine plan, and that... Um, that the, that the universe has has our general well-being at heart. Uh, it's simply that we can't necessarily understand that from our limited perspective. Another thing, just to wind up about why I think Emerson is so is so helpful for the modern modern man or the modern person, is Emerson suggests that everything important comes from the inner the inner being, the inner man, the inner woman. He refers to, to, to royalty, to kings and queens, and he says that royalty has this feature, that it makes its own estimate or puts its own value on things. And, and Emerson suggests that we should all be like kings, be like queens, be like royalty. We should look on the world and, 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 and value it as we wish, as we decide, and that way we, 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 we in some ways, command our existence. Um, but we must also, he suggests, work. We've got to work um, because in doing our own work, doing it in our own way, we unfold ourselves. We, 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 we develop and become the people that we are destined to be. I love that. I, I love this idea of, uh, of seeing. There's something that you, you quote in the book of life usually experienced as, as these partial glimpses of reality could you could you speak to maybe what is meant by these partial glimpses yes yeah, so as, as mentioned earlier emerson um, expresses the view that all things are divine but of course individual humans can only be partial aspects of this divine um, being and, and as partial aspects we, we cannot perceive the fullness of it we can only perceive existence in a partial way but that's not all bad. Um, it, it's through our partial individual nature that we, um, we are magnetic towards aspects of the universe that speak to us and are important to us. So um, 
Emerson suggests that, that, that of course, in our existence, we will come across a multiplicity of, ex- of things and experiences, um, but they will be organized for us. And the, the, the source of the organization is our own character. And our essential nature will gather together and make meaningful those aspects of the universe that are significant to us. He actually um, puts it this way, he, uh, I'll quote, he says, a man is a method, a progressive arrangement, a selecting principle, gathering his light to him wherever he goes. So that's the, that's the point really uh, of, of Emerson's uh, view, that even though we can only perceive reality in a partial manner, nevertheless, that reality organizes itself around the needs and, and requirements of our own character, and it speaks to us in, in that very particular kind of way. His writing, for me, connects with maybe something similar to a mystic or a saint, maybe a little bit of, uh, of Seneca. Where do you think this, this comes from? Any insight in terms of uh, this, uh, this influence on him? I mean, Emerson was famously interested in, in um, both Eastern and Western um, philosophy and religion. So he would have incorporated not simply the, 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 the Western uh, Christian viewpoint, but also some of the, the Eastern uh, perspectives on reality, in particular this idea of, a, of underlying, um, an underlying divine source of being of which we have this partial understanding. In terms of his, um, in terms of whether he's close to being a mystic or a saint, I, I think there's a lot to be said for that 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 insight. Really, he said that real action occurs in silent moments, and, and he adds that it, it, real action occurs in a thought that revises our entire manner of life. So, the spiritual insight really is, is, is that we are totally free internally, that we have a capacity to, to by at a single moment, totally reverse or to adjust or invert our way of seeing the universe. We, we, we change everything because everything comes from our internal perspective. He's also very interesting when he talks about his idea of virtue. He says the virtue is in the adherence in our action to the nature of things. And in particular, he says the virtue is in the, I quote, perpetual substitution of being for seeming. And he refers to the, the basic um, uh, the basic words of, of God in the Christian tradition, I am. And that was what, you know, the, the two words of, uttered by, 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 by the Christian tradition. God. It's the point about Emerson really is that it's being overseeming that that you have to be not to seem. If if you want to affect change, you must be the change you want to affect. Um, everything starts from your essence, your nature, your character. It's partially determined for you, but it's not it's not something that is outside your ability to influence. Um, and I think that, that takes us all the way back, circles back, to, of course, to, to Aristotle, that, um, that everything depends on character, not on the particular uh, preferences we make on a day-to-day or hour-to-hour basis, not the particular choices we, we make on a day-to-day or an hour-to-hour basis, but in, in, in the very core of our being. So if we want to change ourselves, we, we, we don't do so by changing our ideas, our thoughts, our uh, uh, the, the minutiae of our day-to-day existence. We do it by working on our fundamental character. And, and moreover, if we want to change our societies and, uh, or, and the world around us, we, we, we take the same approach. We must start with our character. And it's through our, the changes of our character that we change the, the, the way we act, and it's through the changes in the character and the way we act that we change others who see the truth of our being and then can resonate and respond to it. Well, I love that, Andrew, and that, that sounds like a, a good spot to, 
to wrap up, maybe we could transition to kind of a standard final question that we uh, ask most guests is something around wisdom. How do you define wisdom in everyday life? I mean, we can, we can circle back around to, to Aristotle and also to, to Emerson we just talked about. I would define wisdom as the, the incorporation of virtue in character, making a habit of virtue and taking pleasure from it. This is the, the insight that I think my books are, are, are really, as a whole, are conveying. I mean, they, they do so much more detail than that um, and, and uh, hopefully um, more... <laughs> With more uh, color and more, uh, more more different aspects than that, but the incorporation of virtue and character, making a habit of virtue and taking pleasure from it, is is the the crux of it all. You, you wisdom is not just some ideas you have; it's not just some thought you have, and in particular, it's not an ideology. Wisdom has to be all about um, a change that happens in the core of your being. And that when that change has happened, everything else follows from from that. So it's all about character. I think that the four the four authors you've you've identified as the four of the the, the authors that I include in the book. There are, there are others as well, but the four are well picked. I mean, Aristotle, as discussed, is all about cultivating character through habit. That's his idea of wisdom. Chuang Chuang Tzu is all about. Um, Remaining flexible, open to change, um, adapting yourself to, to the, 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 the Tao, the force in the universe, um, not getting distracted by trivia, um, not getting distracted by the froth of life uh, or the futile busyness of, of life and focusing on those actions that are truly most consequential. We looked at Hazlitt. Uh, Hazlitt is all about getting out there, just having a go, putting yourself forward. Don't try and be perfect. You're not going to be perfect. Even if you're perfect, nobody will really appreciate it. So just get out there and have a go. Um, and, and that's the way you, you help yourself and also help society as a whole. And then there's Emerson, who talks about how everything stems from the inner man, how you must work on yourself first. So, so that is, is um, Emerson's insight into wisdom. I mean, for me, as you probably know, there's not just classic philosophy for the modern man. I've also so written classic spirituality is a bit similar and classic ethics for the modern man, also classic political philosophy. Um, all the books um, introduce some of the, um, the great writers on these topics um, and also provide extracts, carefully selected extracts from, from their work. If I were to summarize, particularly from classic philosophy, classic ethics, and classic spirituality, the wisdom that I think the books as a whole um, are trying to convey, I'd summarize it like this, that, that really the, the, the trick of life or the technique of life is to, to try to be one's own point of origin, to, 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 to live life in a way that, that, that you are acting and not reacting. As far as possible, to be to be remaining as the calm center of of the storm of life, and in every day to try and just do one or two small acts of self overcoming, um, steps or actions that you can take that are con- highly conscious, um, raising yourself above the unconsciousness of life. Because you know, so much of our life really is un- unconscious. We are, we are carrying out our day-to-day routines and activities, and sometimes we have to do that. But we go on a kind of autopilot, and it's not, a, it's not healthy to be there for too long. We have to step out of the autopilot, have to step out of the unconsciousness, raise ourselves to this conscious level. And we do that, I think, by by exercising some, some little moments of self-control throughout the day. Some moments where you're going to do something, you're about to do something, and you suddenly, your consciousness steps in and, and raises itself higher and says, no, I'm not going to do that. And, and you can pick um, the simplest of things, the, the, the moment where you're, you're doing something that's lazy, you're doing something that's greedy, you're doing something that's reactive, you're doing something that's cruel, you're doing something that's childish or petty. Um, at that moment, just recognize you're doing those things and, um, and, and, and stop and, and, and say, I'm not doing that or I'm going to do something better. And, uh, and each time you do it, you'll find it gets a bit easier to do it later and, um, and, and the next day. And it's a remarkable thing. 
And, and I, I don't claim to have become an expert at it. I, I am as fallible as every other human out there. But I'm, I think that is the, the, something in that. And, and if we all were able to do that, raise ourselves to a slightly higher level of consciousness through, through just not reacting automatically to things, then, then we are taking steps towards wisdom. I love this idea, acting, not reacting. Do you see that as as a just a lifelong pursuit? We never quite get there? How, how do you think about that? I, I think that it's a challenge for every one of us. But it is, I mean, what is the point of this existence? We don't, we don't know what the point is. Nobody gave us the instruction manual when we arrived on this planet. And that's part of the difficulty and part of the, you know, the, 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 the tragedy sometimes of, of life. However, again, if we, if we do, if you, if you do try to do this, every time you find yourself just reacting and especially when you're reacting in a way that is, is, is producing palpably negative outcomes. I mean, for example, when, you, when we act childishly, uh, when we act vengefully, when we act out of a, a mean spirit, um, we act cruelly, we act out because we want to, to assert our power over others. Um, and we just don't do that. And, and it's a little bit of a, like a, like a, <laughs> like a bit of a ray of sunlight in, in, in your life. It's, it's that, that sterilizing your soul. If, if you do that, I, I don't necessarily think that any of us were designed to be able to get to that point. I'm not sure why we're on this, this planet, what our, what our purpose is. All I can say is that, that from my personal experience, if you do apply this, this approach, uh, you will find these moments of this, this rays of sunlight every now and then, um, coming into your soul and and you will you will find that that's a that's a, a quite a nice thing to happen <laughs> i can't say more than that you mentioned there's a number of books in the series is there a recommended starting point or can people kind of just pick up wherever they're most interested i mean the the book that you've highlighted the one we've discussed today is classic philosophy of the modern man and that's obviously the starting point it was the first book and it's the book that is really um was was written in the most uh, 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 most open-hearted style. I, I simply sat down and wrote it. I, I, I tried to identify the, the the works of philosophy and the extracts from those works that I thought quite simply thought were the most useful for the average person who's 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 working hard in life and trying to 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 to, to, to live a better life. And, and what could they best be served with in two hundred odd pages? So that's the starting point. Uh, I would then move on to perhaps classic spirituality for the modern man, which uh, identifies the, the works not so much philosophy but more the spiritual classics, but takes a similar overall approach, trying to identify those spiritual works that, that have the most general significance for the, the, the ordinary man or woman who, who wants to um, understand a little bit about the, the development of spiritual thinking but most importantly, wants to have some practical um, insights into how, how one can raise your um, spiritual um, being. Then I'd move on to classic ethics for the modern man, which really focuses on, on the ethical works of, uh, of philosophy um, and focusing on or developing the idea, really, that, that we've, we've talked about today, which is the concept from Aristotle that ethics really is about um, cultivating a particular kind of character or disposition towards virtue rather than, than abstract moral rules. Um, and, and my fourth book in the series, although it wasn't written, it wasn't the fourth book I wrote chronologically, but it's probably the fourth in terms of what the, um, the reader should approach, is the uh, book entitled Classic Political Philosophy for the Modern Man, which is um, an overview of the of the most significant um, political uh, philosophy works uh, and introductions to those. Well, this has been great, Andrew. Where can people go to to learn more about you and and the books? Well, I mean, Amazon is a very useful starting point. I mean, my, my books are all available on on Amazon. Um, I have a I have a website, although because I'm 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 
I work full time, so I don't have that much time to to uh, to update the, the website. But there is one, and occasionally I, I do I do update the website. So that is another place to go. But um, Amazon and and or my, my website are both places to go. Of course, the most important thing is just to to, to get hold of the books. Uh, I say they're easily available on, on Amazon and. Um, Start with classic philosophy and, and, and work through. And I also have some books on um, Shakespeare tales. I've got some prose, uh, the, the, the most famous um, prose versions of Shakespeare with, with introductions by myself, uh, which would allow a, a somebody who's interested in, in Shakespeare to get an overview of Shakespeare's works in, in the most well-known prose versions. And also I have, a, I have another book I wrote a long time ago, called generativity and all these i say are available on on amazon that's probably the first port well great for the listeners we'll link all uh, everything discussed in the uh, show notes andrew lynn thank you so much for your time it's been a pleasure thanks joshua i've thoroughly enjoyed it thank you so much for listening you can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to The Path. It's our free weekly newsletter. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right to your inbox. And lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. Until next time, be wise and be well.